is wise? The one who learns from others. Join me on a journey where I speak to Jewish women from all different backgrounds, each sharing their own stories, struggles, and successes. Be a part of a community where you connect to something greater than yourself. I'm your host, Karen Corin, and welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Soul Sessions. I'm your host, KK, and I'm really excited to present my next guest to you. We first met each other in our early 20s at the JEC, the Jewish Enrichment Center. I remember her as Kate. We then reunited when we were both working for Aisha Torah's New York office. This time, she didn't go by Kate, but she went by Kayla, and she was married. Today, Kayla Levin is a marriage coach, and her specialty is newlyweds. She coaches women and couples in a one-on-one and group setting. She also offers virtual courses so that everyone across the world can have access to her wisdom and gain practical techniques to make their marriage great. Kayla is a podcast host herself, and you can find her podcast by searching First Year Married on your podcast player. Today, Kayla lives in Israel with her husband and four children. I urge you to listen to her fascinating life story. There is much more to her than what meets the eye. I really look forward to hearing your comments. But first, a word from our sponsor. Life is busy. In the hustle and bustle of life, it's easy to forget about what's important. Between work, school, family life, and all the other details involved in living, it's hard to keep track of what matters in life. It's hard to remember to live with intention and true connection and meaning. So how can we help live a more meaningful life amongst the busyness? Take time to write your thoughts and plan for what's important to you. Take time to find meaning in even the ordinary moments of life. The Mindful Moments Planner was created with a Jewish woman in mind. It was created to help empower us to connect and focus on what really matters in life. The Mindful Moments Planner has space to help you reflect and plan for a busy life, but a focused life. It's created to help you take time out of your life each month, week, and day to set goals and reflect on how to live as your best self. With the Mindful Moments Planner, take time to focus your thoughts so you can live with intention instead of just living each day by your to-do list. And now... I'd love to introduce Kayla Levin. Kayla, it's such a pleasure to have you on Soul Sessions. So Kayla and I, we go way, way back. I'm talking like, I don't know, 15 years ago, Kayla? Could that be? I don't know. Maybe. Um, <laughs> um, when we were young, when we were young. <laughs> back in the day. Young, <laughs> I met Kayla first at the JEC, which was the Jewish Enrichment Center. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, we had events in the city. It was like, I think in like Midtown Manhattan. It was with Rabbi Hajio. And Kayla was working there at the JEC. And I met her. And she was wonderful. And I remember her as Kate. You are actually Kate back then when I mm-hmm. met you. Yeah. And lo and behold, like seven years later or so, I was working at Aisha Torah in their New York office, and who comes to work at Aisha Torah? Kayla, Kayla Levin, <laughs> who I previously knew as Kate. Yep. And you are completely different. Um, when I first met you at the JEC, 
I didn't think, I didn't even know you were Jewish, um, to be honest with you. Um, I thought you were just a regular girl. Maybe I think, you know, you just got introduced to Judaism. You weren't from. And then when I saw you at Asha Torah, you were a completely different person. You were wearing a wig or a shaitel and your dress code was different and you were also married. Yeah. So, yeah. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I mean, besides what you do, which is your first year married podcast and you're a marriage coach, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am Kate slash Kayla Levin. I'm happy to go by both. Um, and I, right now, yeah, as you said, I'm a marriage coach. I live in Ramah Beit Shemesh as of three months ago, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Um, and I'm married, we've married, we just had our 10 year anniversary at the beginning of summer. So thank you. So 10 years married and, um, we have four kids and yeah, that's on one foot. (laughs) Wow. Mhm mhm. So, can you that's really interesting because you are not originally from Ramat Beit Israel. You moved there 3 months ago. Can you give us a little background? I know you have a really interesting and non-traditional story on how you actually became more observant and how you discovered Judaism. Yes. Can you please share that with our listeners? Sure, sure. So my family would be the poster children for intermarriage. <laughs> if any Jewish okay. family ever intermarried so well, it, I, we joke that that was our Masora to, to marry out. Wow. Um, so my, I, I found out that I was Jewish when I was 12. We no didn't, yeah, we didn't even know. Um, my mother had grown up with kind of whispers around the table and people would would ask about it. Wait, what's this thing about us being Jewish? And then it would get shushed up and then everyone would be uncomfortable and then they would change the topic. And why was it hushed up? Why, why weren't they talking about it? There's a couple different opinions. You know, it's, we're already going back a while, so it's hard to, to place it exactly, but we know that a big amount, a big section of the family converted to evangelical Christianity. So there's Mm -hmm. the possibility that it was just, you know, that's not what we are with this other thing. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, my great-grandmother was running away from Poland. Um, She actually ran away before World War II, and she intermarried. And from what we hear from, you know, my grandmother was one of, I think, like 14 kids. And she, some of those kids got more of the story, and some got less. And she was definitely on the less end of the spectrum. And as, yeah, as we started researching it and looking into it, we found out from... Um, from other cousins that, you know, she really thought that like, you know, the Jews were going to lose the war and that they needed to hide their identity, hide everything that could track them back to being Jewish um, and assimilate like many as, as well do. as possible. Yeah. 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 Wow. So it's really and just, it's a fluke we, that I even found out. How did you, I mean, how did you find out? Your mother disclosed it to you? Like, how so did my, that happen? Right, so my mother didn't really know. My grandmother, I guess, growing up would joke about it, you know, oh, so Jewish of us or something like that. But even she really didn't know. I don't think she could have said, you know, certainly that she was Jewish. But my mother was in Canada, which is where she's from. And they were visiting the grave of her grandmother, my great-grandmother. And her mm-hmm. cousin just started saying, you know, he just started spilling the beans. Here's her story. Here's everything about her. And my mom was just like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And then, um, <laughs> yeah. And so she came back and she, I don't know, you know, 
exactly her thought process, but she decided to take, you know, this, I think it was like a one night workshop, Judaism for people who don't know anything about it type of thing. And um, yeah, she spoke to the rabbi and the rabbi heard the whole story. And he said, well, just so that you know, like, according to all Jews, there is a concept of matrilineal heritage. And when you trace it up, you're going straight up the women. So according to Jews, and that's what my mom said when she came home, she said, you know, honey, you don't have to do anything about this. Just know that according to Jews, you're Jewish. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) How did you take, like, how did you take that information and how did it impact your family life? How did it impact your, your husband? Yeah your dad and mom's marriage so i think initially i really took it like any 12 year old would which was oh that's cool i'm jewish too like you know we were very interested in i'm scottish and i have some english and i have some irish and oh so we'll add jewish you know like it was just added Mm -hmm. into the to the melting pot of who we were um Mm -hmm. but we were a pretty serious family when it came to religion it was something that we discussed a lot my father actually has a master's in divinity from a a seminary a christian seminary in the boston area Mm -hmm. and so we we spoke about it and so the message that i really got from my parents was that god is important and relevant to our life and so as a kid when i had questions that was my, my natural reaction was to go to the church to find answers. And somewhere around mm-hmm. middle school, I started taking adult education classes because I felt like the, what was being offered to kids wasn't sophisticated enough. And, yeah. oh, wow. I, Very smart. <laughs> and I started to, um, to have some real questions with the, the philosophy that I was being presented with. Um, what, I like 12 years old? How old were you? I think probably at this point I would I would guess it's somewhere in middle school. I'm really not sure exactly. Maybe yeah. even like eighth grade, ninth grade, maybe even starting high school at that point. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of at one point just said, that's it. Like this, I really don't. I also had like a big shift because I started in Boston and I moved to Orlando. And the nature of Christianity in those two areas of the country is very different. So I kind of had to wrap my head around, wait, these people who are totally different than me, because I was raised in a really liberal you know, very accepting home. And then I moved to the South where, you know, it, it's not across the board, but in general, it's much more like, here are the rules, you got to stick to them and we'll pray for you if you don't. And that was like, this is not, what are we doing? This is not comfortable. So so you went from an environment where God was accepted by all, or were you in an environment where everyone had you know freedom to practice whatever they want to practice if you believe in god if you didn't believe in god and then you move to a place where it was like no you gotta believe in god is that how it worked i can say that that's how i experienced it right i don't know i can't mm-hmm. speak for you know the whole the whole state but that's definitely the experience yeah. that i had um mm-hmm. and so i think between that the cultural shift and also the the education there was a point where I was like, this is just not for me. This is, I don't, I don't believe it. And um, I took out, you know, I changed, you know, my, my official heading changed from Christian to agnostic, right? Which was essentially, if you think you know, then you're crazy. (laughs) How could any human being possibly know? There's no way to know. And that's really the only, the only real truth is that none of us know. And that was my philosophy for a little while. At that Um, time when you were in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a little while wow. where I tried to be atheist and my best friend said to me like, Kate, just cut it out. Like everyone knows you believe in God. It's just, it's all over you. 
Like you can't shake it. You believe in God, just give up trying to pretend you don't. So I was agnostic for a while. And, um, you know, but I feel like this was your process. This was the way you had to encounter God. Yes, for sure. For sure. And it was interesting because, um, you know, stepping away, I remember so, so many things that I was really struggling with. You know, it's like Hashem gives you the cure before the maca. Like, I remember mm-hmm. being there in the adult education classes in my church and saying, I don't get it. If, if God is that important, shouldn't it impact like the way I eat? Shouldn't it impact the way I go through my whole day every day? And again, are there teachers out there who maybe could, could answer that possibly for, you know, for that religion? I'm not a spokesperson for Christianity, um, obviously, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the teacher that I had basically said, you know, here's a schedule of the different readings that you could read each day to stay connected. And I was like, this isn't right. There's, there's gotta be something that's more immersive in our whole life. So mm-hmm. probably not so surprised that I ended up <laughs> where I am today. Um, wow. Yeah. So, so you know, basically like on, for you. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I, I tend to interrupt. I'm, I'm rude like that in a New York way. We love everything about <laughs> you, Karen. <laughs> um, when you were taking these adult education classes when you were like in eighth or ninth grade mm-hmm. and you knew already that you were jewish so yeah. did you want to sort of like encompass all your backgrounds and all the different types of religions to see what like made sense to you so it's 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 embarrassing that it took me so long to consider looking into judaism i mean i really tried let everything else that i could possibly get my hands on first um until I was at a point where I was like going to church with my family, but I was leaving out. I, I knew the liturgy really well, right? Because we went all the time growing up. Um, and I, I had decided at that point that I had no problem with the Old Testament, but I didn't agree with anything in the New Testament and I didn't believe in the whole Messiah concept. Mm-hmm. So um, I would very carefully pray the prayers that only referred to creation and God and forgiveness. And I would omit all the prayers that referred to JC, to mm-hmm. anything, the apostle, like anything there. I was, I was picking and choosing my way through the service, really just to have some kind of spiritual experience. And I think I did that for a good year and a half before I was like, wait a second. <laughs> and all this time you knew you were Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. This whole time I knew I was Jewish. And, you know, I have to, so I have to think I had one friend who was, you know, um, she's from Columbia her family's from Columbia. She grew up in Miami and we knew each other because we were like on the same debate circuit. And she would always say to me, like, because I told her my story and she would always say like before, before Passover, before Yom Kippur, she would always say, you want to come to Miami? Like you're Jewish. You should do Passover or see if you can get a seder. And even though it was years and years and years before I finally got up the courage to go, it was really that persistent, sweet voice of just you should just know this is who you are and you have a right to it. Like you have a claim to this and, and you can check it out that I think ultimately mm-hmm. got me there. To Miami. So you would say from Orlando to Miami, that's what really made your shift. I, mean, I, I never actually went. I never went. It, I really ended up going. We both went to college in, in New York city. Um, oh, okay. And it, it wasn't until my second year of college that I finally got up the courage to walk into Hillel. I mean, I was convinced that it was going to be just the most uncomfortable, embarrassing, horrific experience ever. <laughs> totally convinced. Yeah. And um, yeah, of course. 
you know, I'm one of these people that like, um, I was, my, my attitude was kind of like, look guys, if this is a club, you know, if I'm not really supposed to be here, like I didn't do a bat mitzvah. I don't know. I'm not, people would always say to me later, like, I'm not a good Jew. Like I kind of had that perspective. Like, I don't know anything. I'm not a good Jew. And it was really mm-hmm. just those people who knew Judaism from a more traditional perspective that would just sort of say to me, like, no, it doesn't matter. You are, you are, you do belong here. And that I finally kind of was able to go and, and check it out for myself. From Hillel in, which university did you go to in New York? New York University. Oh, NYU. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. So was there ever a place or a group of people that, like, you didn't feel comfortable around? A group of Jews, I'm saying. Like, you know, I know that you felt very comfortable at Hillel and you felt accepted, but was there ever a place where you didn't? Yeah, I mean, I think that in, in the beginning, um, you know, there was sort of a point in high school where I was like, hey guys, did you know that I'm also Jewish? Um, I went to mm-hmm. a private Christian prep school in Orlando, mm-hmm. which is where all the serious Jewish parents sent their kids because it was a great education. Um, mm-hmm. So there was a very tight knit group and it, it's understandable they were tight knit because they were in a Christian school. Um, mm-hmm. But I felt That's like- interesting that they're all Jewish, most of them are Jewish. No, I mean, they were definitely the minority. There was, they were definitely the minority, but I, I had a lot of friends that were Jewish. Like I was friends with mm-hmm. a lot of the, the Jewish students. Um, right. And, and I, I wasn't really prepared for what I was going to get. And I, ultimately, it was just they didn't really know what to do with me. They were all coming from different perspectives. Some of them were culturally Jewish. Some of them were more traditional. Um, you know, to the ones that were more traditional, they were like, amazing, let's get you going. Like, what do you need? Let's get started. Right. Um, and then to wow. the ones that were more culturally Jewish, it was very confusing because here's this like blonde hair, green eyed girl, right? Who's mm-hmm. like as non-Jewish culturally as you possibly could be in terms of like what their culture was, right? Um, right. And there really was kind of like a subculture and I didn't fit that. So if their whole identity was based on that, then it was... I don't know. It wasn't taken warmly <laughs> that I was like trying to break in. And so I think that's where I kind of got that feeling of like, look, if I'm not part, supposed to be here, like I'm not trying to break into any party. I'll, I'll find my own mm-hmm. thing. Like I'm fine. Um, because but you didn't I, get you turned know. off from searching within your Judaism. So I like, switched, you got turned like off. at that point I switched to books. I switched to, you know, reading articles online and reading books and just trying to understand it from a more, like ultimately it was, I'm, I'm led, I'm very like cerebral. So it, the real, the real thing that mattered to me was what is the philosophy and do I agree with it? Um, so mm-hmm. I had a couple of years where really that was the majority of my learning. Wow. And majority of that, would you say took place in New York when you came to New York and you were in college there? So I'd say like most of the reading was in high school when I was like not comfortable joining in socially. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I think it's harder in high school because you're still based on whatever your parents are doing, right? Yeah. So yeah. when you get to college, then people are sort of owning their own experience. And I got to college and I, you know, I got in early acceptance. So I spent the second half of senior year just signing up for every listserv for every club that I might possibly be interested in joining. That's so interesting. Um, and so I was signing up for all the Jewish ones because I was like, oh, I'll get to college and then I won't be scared. Like, then I won't feel uncomfortable. I'll just get to college and then everything will be fine and I'll just go and be Jewish there. Wow. It seemed like from a young age, you had like such a good head on your shoulders and you kind of like, you did what you wanted to do and you had your own search. 
I mean, it, I, I was it, very normal and crazy in almost every other area. <laughs> Let's just be realistic here. But with this, you, you were really, you know, you showed independence and that mm. you were searching for your truth. Yeah. Yeah. And I think and that's very much really the message care. I got from my parents was, you know, this is important. This is important. It's, it's worth spending some time researching. It's worth looking into. So your, your parents supported you in the search. Yeah, for sure. And how did, how did finding out that your mom was Jewish and that you were Jewish, how did it affect your family in general? Like, did, it, did they become more exploratory in their no, Judaism? I mean, was my mom has definitely taken some classes. You know, she's taken, like, introductory Hebrew, and she's done some things here and there. She had a partner in Torah mm-hmm. at one point. Um, but for the most part, you know, I was the youngest, and so I think that maybe my identity was a little bit more fluid at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everyone else right. kind of knew what they were all about by the time that they found out. Right, right. So uh, you got to New York and you're in college. And what did you major in? Drama. Drama? Yeah, I was in Tish. Yep. Oh, wow. <laughs> and can you tell us how you met your husband? Sure. So I had at that point started going to Hillel events and I got roped into volunteering um, for at NYU they do this really cute thing called welcome week where the older students run programs around Manhattan basically so freshmen can like figure out the subway system and not get lost because there's really no campus right Um, Mm -hmm. and so I got roped in to be one of the welcome week volunteers as one of the older students Um, and I was just at an event that was co-sponsored with AAPI and I was freezing cold. And so someone loaned me, our friend Bradley loaned me his hoodie to, to, to not be freezing cold. So I wouldn't have to go home and, um, (laughs) not seeing my welcome week volunteer t-shirts. My husband (laughs) tried to welcome me (laughs) very warmly. (laughs) And, um, that's basically what happened. It wasn't for a little while where like, you know, we split ways and I had to give Bradley back his sweatshirt. And he was like, wait a second, you're not a freshman. Nope. Oh, Um, wow. The rest is history. Oh, wow. So yeah. you have been with your husband. I mean, you're married for 10 years. And how mm-hmm. long have you been with your husband? We were together for three years before you we were married. Oh, wow. Yeah. And does your husband have a similar experience to you? No, before? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> no, my husband's mother is Sparty Israeli. Um, so mm-hmm. she really raised them with like, a lot of, you know, Yerushalayim and like, the home was kosher they're very traditional I think they actually became more traditional as he was getting older but by the time he was really noticing what was going on they were keeping kosher Mm -hmm. they were doing kiddush on Friday night um so you know we were similar in that we were both raised in homes where there was kind of a presence of Hashem right but Mm -hmm. he was really from a very he was like a president of USY for his region he was very very involved Jewishly a very strong Jewish identity I think that's part of what attracted you to him correct yeah, like I mean, the fact that he was so passionate. It's really interesting because um, shortly before I met him, I decided that four generations of intermarriage was enough for one family, and I was only going to date Jewish guys. Um, that is amazing. Yeah, and so that, and then I had decided that I wasn't quite ready to take on only eating kosher meat, but that I was going to take every opportunity that I could. And it ended up being that the reason that we met, part of the whole way it played out, was that when we were at this event, this welcome week event, and it was in the Upper West Side, everyone decided to go out for food because Mm -hmm. we were in the Upper West Side. So there was kosher food. And 
my husband and I both had the same thought process of everyone is dividing, you know, meat and dairy. And we were both like, well, kosher dairy is redundant. Dairy is already kosher as far as we were concerned at that point. So let's go get some meat, right? So we both went to the meat restaurant and it wasn't until everyone had completely split up and was like a block away that I realized I was the only girl that had chosen meat. They had all gone for pizza. So then I'm looking around and I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I don't know any of these guys. This is really embarrassing. It's too late now to just like leave. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's when he started talking to me. So I feel like Hashem really, you know, my husband was a gift because I had made these two commitments and it was really through these two tiny commitments so so early on in my journey that I met him. It just shows like from your story, uh, how you met your husband, that the choices we make and the commitments we make from those choices, how it really has a ripple effect on everything else. And it wasn't it really even does. like, even this meat one, it wasn't even like I was saying, like, I'm keeping kosher forever or anything big or even that hard. It was just, I'm going to make a focus on like taking the opportunity when I can, like as much as I can, you know, it was a very mm-hmm. appropriate step for where I was in my journey. And mm-hmm. you no, know, I think sometimes we think if it's not like some big, loud and proud major right. public thing that there's nothing to it, but I don't, I don't agree. I think that being really authentic with ourselves and knowing like, what's my next step I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think that gives Hashem some It doesn't have to be broadcasted to the world. Right, yeah. right. It can be very yeah. private and very small and very just appropriate for where you are and what you're ready for. As long as you have intention. I feel like you had a lot of intention with everything that you did. And you weren't doing it for, as you said, like the praise and the claps and, oh, look at her. Or, look how Jewish she is. Like, you really were mamash. You were intentional with everything that you were doing. I really feel like, you know, the, the whole the thing about the, the malach that sits with you in your mother's womb, and then just before you're born, they touch your upper lip, and you forget everything, mm-hmm. and then you're born. So I always joke, I have a really strong crease on my upper lip, so I'm like, the malach made a mistake and hit me so hard, I forgot I was Jewish. <laughs> it went too far. But I really, really had that experience. I mean, I remember, like, as a child, describing what I thought meant, like, heaven and hell meant. And then when I learned the Jewish definition, it was so much more in accordance with what I had believed as a child. And I, all these different points along the way where it, I really had that experience of, I know I've never learned this before because I wasn't raised Jewish, but this, this suits me. This fits. This is exactly what I already believe. Um, wow. I remember even getting wow. to the point where I was like, it's such a shame because everything checks out for me in terms of my gut feeling. Like there was the intellectual, but there's also the gut of what was resonating. It's like, everything mm-hmm. is resonating except... I really think reincarnation is true. And then the rabbi's mm-hmm. like, but we believe in that also. And I'm like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> right. Now I'm covered. Yeah, there's some rabbis who do believe in that and there's some rabbis who don't believe in that. Right. So, yeah. It's definitely included wow. inside, you know, it's definitely included inside this, uh, you know, the greater Jewish perspective. like sure. I do the and all that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. I'm seeing that, you know, based on your childhood and your experience and everything that happened and how you found that you were Jewish, it really impacted how you are today. And your, your Judaism is not like bland and boring and just routine. It's vibrant. And you have a, you have a continued search. Like mm-hmm. you, you haven't stopped. That's very I, I true. <laughs> You know, like I see yeah. it the way you talk and you breathe, you live and breathe Judaism. And do you feel like people who just had it their entire life, they don't have that as much as opposed to a Bapishuva like you? Yeah, I mean, I think we all have our own flavor, right? And I think there's something 
so stunning about a person who was just raised knowing this is true. And I think there are things that are possible for that person that aren't going to be as possible for me. Um, you know, and people always say to me, like, are, isn't it awkward for you? You're raising your children in a whole world and a whole educational system that you didn't go through yourself. And I feel like, no, like the big part of the reason yeah. I went through all this was so that they could continue up the mountain from where I'm leaving off, you know, like I got them here so they could continue. Um, you know, so I think we're all meant to have our own flavor and what we contribute. And I, I, I would hesitate to Beautiful. say that the has so much more, you know, to contribute, but something different for sure. Yeah. Something different for sure. So tell us, okay. So you got married with your husband 10 years ago and you were both in New York at the time, right? So uh, we actually spent a year in Israel before we got married. Oh, okay. That's yeah. key. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So why did you guys decide to move to Israel? So I decided <laughs> to go and I hoped he would join me. Um, wow. You know, I really felt like as I was sort of looking more and more into Judaism, I was kind of trying to see, okay, so what, what's, what exists inside the Jewish worldview and what am I missing? Right. So that was a big part of when I went on birthright. I was like, I have no relationship mm -hmm. with Israel. Like we never talked about Israel growing up. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone that I know that's Jewish, they have some kind of relationship. They have feelings, they have opinions. So I need to go. So I went on birthright. Um, but I also felt that, you know, at this point we were committed to having a Jewish home. Um, mm -hmm. but that was very loosely defined. And we were going for Shabbat meals a lot when we were in college. We went to Passaic. We became very close with certain families there. And we mm -hmm. really were very taken. We were, you know, really like this one was heart first. When we saw these families, when we saw the way the parents were interacting with the children, when we saw the way the children were acting. I remember one time going to a Hanukkah party at um, Rabbi Markowitz's house. Mm -hmm. his little boy, <laughs> yeah, you remember. And his little boy yeah. got up. And gave a Devar Torah, including Rashi. And I just wow. remember, you know, my husband turning to me and being like, I couldn't do that. That's amazing. You know, it just, all these little mm -hmm. experiences, we definitely had a value of it, but we weren't really sure we were ready to go all in, be Shomer Shabbos, live in a community like this. We didn't know where we were going to land. And I just felt like I'm still, the, I'm still lacking so much information. I can't create a Jewish home and be illiterate. I need to go and I need to learn. And so knowing that at this point we were very serious about our relationship, I said, I think what I need to do is I need to spend a year in Israel. And this slowly morphed from like, let's be on a kibbutz and learn Hebrew to like, let's go to like some, you know, male, female learning Bye -bye. programs to like, mm -hmm. Hey honey, I'm going to go to an all girls school and you can go to an all guys school and see you later. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? Um, and you know, thank God he eventually like came along for the ride. He had his own journey and his own Rebeim who were amazing and inspiring. And I think those relationships really propelled him in his own growth. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so that was a big piece. And also I felt like I had never been in a situation. I wasn't in a sorority in college. They're not big at NYU. And I thought, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be nice to go and, and spend time with a bunch of women, like really have like a sisterhood, have strong female friendships. Mm -hmm. That's not something I really felt like I had a lot of growing up. Wow, that's phenomenal. Um, Kayla, when you guys were in Israel, I, I just, I noticed from the way you're speaking right now that your husband was very much influenced by your passion and your fervor for Judaism, that he kind of not followed you, but like 
yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like, he had his own passions, but he also was very passionate about Judaism. But mm -hmm. you kind of, like, put your foot down and you're like, I want to go to Israel. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, what would you say to couples who, let's say, the girl has different passions in Judaism, you know, than her husband? Right. How can they make that work? Meaning I, the, the metaphor that I've always heard, which I really like, is you have to just look at the trajectory. Meaning, you know, if a, if a girl is growing and becoming more inspired and she meets someone who's more religious, but he's on the burnout scale and he's heading down, right? Mm -hmm. So then this isn't the right trajectory. But if she's inspired and she's growing and she meets someone else, whether he's a little bit further ahead or further behind, and it's not linear. I mean, we all grow in different areas at different times, but you know what I'm saying. Um, but right. both moving in a forward direction and I think doing it from a place of like openness and, and not cynicism, um, then I think, I think that's very promising. But I will say as a caveat to our story, because sometimes people hear this and they're like, what a fantastic solution to the shidduch crisis. I'll get a boyfriend and then we'll become religious, right? <laughs> and I would say no, like we definitely know a lot of couples that had a similar situation. They were dating, they went and they went to go learn and you learn so much about yourself and it wasn't such an easy year for us in our relationship. The Shana Rishona, the first year no, of marriage. We weren't married yet. We weren't married yet. We were, this was before we were married. When you went to Israel? Yeah, when we went to Israel. Yeah. Yeah, we got oh, married my immediately God. after. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't like ready for, oh. I wasn't ready for marriage until I, until I figured this stuff out. Oh, I didn't know that. I was confused yeah. about that. Yeah. Okay, so you went to Israel for a year when you were just, Dating. Before you were married. Yeah. Oh, when you were dating. Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. So I mean, and at this point, like, we were definitely intended to get married, but we weren't sure when. Our, our parents are saying, take your time. You're so young. You know, <laughs> but mm -hmm. don't worry mm -hmm. about it yet. Um, yeah, very different yeah. from where I'm growing up. You're right. As soon as you're high school, you, yalla, go find a guy. Definitely not that. Definitely not that. But yeah, but I mean, we were very lucky that it worked out for us. I think a lot of it had to do with, we were very separate. I was in my school. He was in his school. We had very separate journeys. Um, and when we thought there was a conflict, to be honest, my husband lied to me outright. You know, I remember at one point coming to him and saying, I, I don't know if I'm ready to give up my whole career as an actor. And I don't know if I want to do this hair covering thing. And mm -hmm. what do you, you go to this school is with all these Haredim, like if you're going to want to marry a lady who wears a shaitzal, like, what are we going to do? And mm -hmm. he looked me dead in the eye and he said, I totally don't care what you do. My relationship with God has nothing to do with your, what you're doing. So wow. half of that was true. Wow. Half of that was true. My relationship to God has no, has no, you know, has nothing to do with what you're doing. Meaning that's true. He definitely believed that that he had no preference was not true, but he knew that if he put any pressure on me, I could never have the mitzvah for myself. Mm. So he oh. lied and I'm grateful to him <laughs> that he did, <laughs> you know, because then I never felt like, oh, I have to keep this guy. I love him so much. I'm going to just deal with it and cover my hair. But actually I ended up covering my hair as an independent choice for myself. So, um, mm -hmm. You know, that again, our, our journeys were in some ways so separate and so individual, even though we were going through it together. That's so interesting. And it also shows that the person who you meet like 10 years ago is not going to be the same person <laughs> two years down the line, five years down the right. line. Not that like we're going to change that person's, oh, you're going to change. You're going to change in the marriage. But people naturally just, I think, they evolve if they have the right 
you know, mindset. Mm-hmm. People who have their head in the game and they have the right mindset, they do eventually evolve. Like my husband is not the same. But he doesn't have the same ideas that he did when we first got married. He has totally evolved in his Judaism and, you know, his personal growth. Right. And, you know, you're showing that firsthand. Um, so why did you decide to become a marriage coach and specifically, I believe, for newlyweds? Yes. Um, well, the truth is I was a life coach for a while, um, probably mm-hmm maybe four years or so. Um, and I was a generic life coach. I, I originally was going to go for my MSW. I was even, you know, enrolled and ready to go. And then, um, and then I was expecting my first child and she was due exactly the first day of final exams first semester. And so I oh said, this is crazy. I'll just push it off for a year. I'm going to defer for a year. I'll go back for the MSW the following semester, the following year. And we ended up moving out of Passaic and we moved to Atlanta that year. So I couldn't defer. I didn't want to do that commute. <laughs> um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then when I thought about it more deeply, I realized that although I've always wanted um, a master's degree, at least, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I really wanted the work of a life coach. I really enjoy working with people who they're highly functioning and they're still struggling. Um, I think that's a f- fascinating place to be. And so as a generic life coach, I was doing a lot of helping people with parenting, with weight loss, with business, with time management, um, just troubleshooting daily problems. And that was fine. Um, but when I started doing some more advanced training, I started to answer some, or not answer really, but start to coach my clients more on their marriages. And mm-hmm. it turned out that because I had had a very challenging Shana Rishona first year of marriage, I Your Shana really, Rishona was in Passaic? Yeah, 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 yeah mm-hmm. in Passaic, yeah. Thank God we had an amazing network. Um, it was only challenging because my, my head was very, um, a very dramatic and scary place to be at the time. Thank God mm-hmm. nothing so much was going on, you know, externally. It was really my internal struggle. My parents ended up divorcing. Um, and at that time? No, before when I was younger, but they were married for 24 years and I'd never seen them fight. And so I made that mean for myself that really a marriage could just fall apart at any moment, right? That was kind of my like childish interpretation of what I'd seen. So I went into marriage like, this is terrifying. I mean, he's going to, I have to protect myself or I have to make him prove that he's serious. You know, I just was like, not again, Mm -hmm. (laughs) my brain was a scary place to be that year. You were probably um, like trying to find something maybe find a problem. Oh, testing him. And I mean, come on. It was insane. Literally, we had one argument where he was like, why are you so upset? It's not like I'm going to divorce you. And I went into hysterics (gasps) and I said, I can't believe you used the word divorce. I was hysterical. And he was like, because Mm -hmm. I'm saying I'm not divorcing you. Like I, I wasn't logical. I was so wrapped up in all my mind drama. And, you know, today I can look back and see that what was really happening is that when we have a thought that's very heartbreaking and tragic, it hits us right in the gut. And mm-hmm. most of us think that when a thought hits us in the gut, it means that we've just like revealed this deep truth, right? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, it's mm-hmm. so true. But really all that was happening was I desperately wanted to stay married to this guy that I was so in love with. And so just any imagination of like this not working out would hit me in the gut because it's not what I wanted. Right. But I didn't right. know that. I didn't know that. So I just thought like all these thoughts must be true because I'm having them. <laughs> and oh, that's where I was. Right. 
So I very fortunately shifted at some point. I don't know exactly when that was, but I made a shift between from, you know, marriage could fall apart at any moment and there's no way to know to marriage is a skill and you have to learn what to do. And, and marriage is a skill. That's a interesting. Skill. Yeah. And so never with an intention to teach this material because I was such a hot mess. No one would listen to me about marriage for sure. I went and researched and learned and took every shell and bias class. I mean, to the point where, you know, Rabbi Tatz was like, stop listening to my marriage class. You guys have heard it enough. You can quote it verbatim, you know, and it, it, I remember going to our rabbi and saying, I mean, come on, at this point, I've been to every single shalom bias class. I don't know what to do because I already know what they're going to say before they say it. And he was like, it's time to move on. You know, maybe you should take some parenting classes now, like move on. Because I just became obsessed with learning the secular, the Jewish, every piece of literature I could get my hands on to understand better. And the more that I learned, the more I saw how true it was that, oh my gosh, wait, I... I really thought this is why my husband was doing this, but I was wrong. It's because of this. Wait, this whole fight we were having just dissolved because I just misunderstood him. And so I, it's very yeah. addictive when you start to get that material because you're like, my whole life is just getting easier and easier you know, before my yeah. eyes. Um, so yes. Yeah, so like changing the way you thought. Yeah. Literally changing your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part wow. of it, but it's a lot easier to change it when you find out that this is something that's true for most men. Or this mm -hmm, is a misconception mm -hmm. that most couples have, or you know, any of those things. Right. That, that also helps a lot. So it's like when um, you understand their like love language in a way. Yeah. Or yeah. you know what they're all about, how their brains work. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I would say, like for that mm -hmm. one, for the love language, it's more the opposite, meaning, you know, my husband doesn't give me gifts, but then I realize, wait a second, he always likes someone to clean the house. So when he cleans the house, mm -hmm. he's showing me he loves me. Mm -hmm. right? I actually have mm -hmm. a podcast episode called The Love Language is Trap because sometimes people use this material to feel worse about their marriage. But, um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Back on track. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. So, yeah, so basically when my clients started to talk to me about their marriages and I would say, okay, I'm coaching. And then I'd say, can I take off my coach hat for a second and just share some information with you that I learned? And then I would, and it would just blow their mind the same way it blew my mind. And then, mm -hmm they would start coaching with me one-on-one -on -one and we would really dive through the material. And I just had so much to share because I knew what, what had worked for me and what had, you know, resonated and also what I'd seen in a lot of different places in the research and eventually got to a point where I said, well, this is very inefficient. I, I already know like what the main pieces that somebody needs are. So let me put this together into a course. So instead of like working with me one-on-one -on -one and we're pulling out the pieces, you know, in sort of this disorganized fashion, let's get all the material mm -hmm. there. And then in general, what I do is I coach women once they've finished the course. So now they have all that material, but it's more implementation. Mm, that's so interesting. So you per first provide a course. It's like how many classes are in this course? Six classes. Six classes. And then once they're done with these six classes, which is like very, a lot of material, is that's when you go into the coaching where it's more personal. Right. Is that what you do? Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, do you wish you had like something like your course when you just got married? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, that's really like, that was, that was how we designed the whole thing, right? It was like, what did I need? Mm -hmm. What, what did it take me 10 years to put piece together? You know, and I think it's tricky because I think, you know, when people have kids, they figure out pretty quickly that they need to have a mentor. They need to ask questions. They need to take a class. Um, but when we get married, we don't have that attitude. You know, if it's not working, no. we're like, it's maybe it's the wrong guy or maybe we're broken or maybe, you know, 
I don't know, but there's, it's I, never I like, oh, I didn't learn also. how to do this. Shame. Yeah. It's very hard. It'd be much, I would be, it would be much easier for me to be a parenting coach by far. People are so much more comfortable showing up to a parenting class of course. <laughs> than a marriage class. Yeah. Like people don't want to show that they have shalom, they have any shalom bite issues. Right. It's, it's, there's a lot of shame and stigma around that, but like, oh, that you like yell at your kids or, you know, you had a big fight with your son about this. Like, that's something that people are more comfortable being public about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But, you know, it's a shame because I think, you know, I see what happens with my clients and I see that they do this material. Our marriages are so, there's so much potential for personal growth inside your marriage. And I would, mm-hmm. I would argue more so than in your parenting. And, um, and I think mm-hmm. that when, that when you do that work, like I see what happens with my clients, they go and they do the work on their marriage and then they get a promotion. Or they go and they do the work on their marriage and they lose weight that they've been struggling to lose because the the work that they did on their self now it's 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 it goes everywhere right it's relevant to every piece of their life so all these other pieces they can start to knock it down because they gain the skills that they were mm-hmm. you know these things show up everywhere right if you have a problem in one area you're going to have similar things everywhere what would you say is like the number one problem or oh, no not problem what would you say is the number one skill that a person needs in order to help fix their marriage or to improve their marriage? Like what's like the first thing that they need in order for their marriage to go on the road to recovery and greatness? Um, I think you could theoretically do all of it just with thought work, which this is thought work. thought work is sort of the advanced training that I did under Brooke Castillo, who has a lot of people know her from the life coach school podcast. Um, Mm -hmm. she trains a lot of coaches and she does life coaching in a very, very different way than any other coach. And Mm -hmm. essentially what it is, is breaking down what it's, it's very similar to, um, CBT from what I've been told by therapists, but it's breaking Mm -hmm. down what's actually happening in the situation and then separating that from what you thought about it and how the thought created the feeling and then your action and then your result. And I think that when, when you really, really learn that skill, and it's, it's a little bit tricky to learn, but it's doable, and you can also do it for yourself once you've learned it. You don't always have to work with a coach. Then you take that, that new bride, like I was, who's thinking, oh my gosh, I think the marriage is falling apart, and now I'm miserable. And if you were to ask me, how's your marriage going? And I would want to say to you, I'm miserable. It's awful. I would have been able to go, wait, you know what? It's miserable because I'm, I'm, I'm riding all these horrible thoughts about it. But those thoughts mm-hmm. might be optional and I should look at what's literally happening. Now, this isn't to say, we always have to have a caveat with marriages, that there aren't situations where someone really does have a psychological problem or, or that there's an abusive situation or there's a power play dynamic. No, those things like definitely you need a mentor and you need a therapist and to talk to somebody to figure it out if it's like that. But for the vast majority of us, and again, this is what was fascinating me about coaching in, from the beginning, is you take these highly functioning people everything should be working for them. There's no, they should be fine. Right. When we look at it from the outside, they have all the skills they need, but it's not mm-hmm. working because they're human. <laughs> and because right, we don't learn right. this stuff in school, we should be learning this in school. Right. Right. I, I mean, what about this whole idea of, you know, feeling your feelings and validating your other, you know, your self's emotions. I think it's what really is, important. No, I don't think it's a contradiction. I definitely don't think it's a it's contradiction. It's not? No, I don't. I think it's, first of all, sometimes we want negative feelings. Mm-hmm. We don't always want to feel good about things. 
sometimes things are sad and it's good for us to feel sad about them. I don't want to feel good when my kid gets, you know, teased at school. I want right. to, I want to be there with her and I want to feel sad. But if I start to feel a feeling that's debilitating and now I can't help her. So Ooh. I need to know that like I, that that's mm -hmm. optional for me. Right. Mm -hmm. The other piece of it is that sometimes we like, especially in the moment, the, this work is not ever meant to be just take on a happy mantra. Like your marriage is horrible. So if you just thought, oh no, my marriage is wonderful. Mm -hmm. it'll be fine. This is not, this is very practical work. It's not meant to be like juju out there. You know, if, if you think your marriage is terrible. Okay, I'm happy you're clarifying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people <laughs> might think that. Yeah. 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 No, thank you for asking. No, it really, it's, you know, in the moment, if you're feeling a, a feeling, so let's say with children, this comes up a lot, right? Like my kids are out of control and I'm feeling totally angry and I'm about to burst. So what I need to do is the reason I'm going to yell at them is because I think that they're causing all my anger. And I think that my anger is dangerous for me, right? Like my lower lizard brain is telling me mm -hmm. all these terrible emotions are not okay. And I'm not going to be okay. And it needs to stop. So stop them, get them to stop, do whatever you need to do. Scream, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not doing that because I feel bad. I'm doing that because I'm trying to stop feeling bad. Mm. There's so much of the time, the, the actions that come from not processing our feelings, it's because we're running away from the feeling. It's the $250 you just spent at Target and it's the half a sleeve of Oreos you just ate, right? Why? Right. Not because that's when I'm sad, I want to eat Oreos. It's because when I'm sad, I want to do whatever it takes to make me feel better. And all that sugar that's gives it. me that dopamine and then I get out of it because I can't process my emotions, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it really is a two-pronged approach because, you know, when you are in that place, you do need to sort of processing it isn't just, you know, a good idea. It also teaches you not to be scared of it because emotions are really just feelings in your body. You're just mm -hmm. feeling a certain way. And when you can sort of start to like be more objective about it and curious about it, like, oh, wow, that's how I feel. And I'm feeling really, I've had to feel very embarrassed and anxious lately. My business has started to grow and I've been getting out there more. And sometimes I just feel uncomfortable. Like it's just, I would rather kind of stay in my cave and have people come to me for coaching, right? But I can't do that. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I just sort of said like, I'm going to have to feel self-conscious a little more. Right. But and if I know that, it. I don't have to run away from it. I don't have to not, I just, it's just, I'm going to feel that, but I'm not scared of it anymore. Cause I, I know that I can feel it and I can feel it in my body and it's not going to kill me, you know? Mm -hmm. And it helps you uh, perhaps change your thoughts about it after you've acknowledged it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I, don't, I just don't think there's a contradiction between having a feeling and also know you, knowing that you're responsible for the feeling. Interesting. Right. Like I, I, I know that last night I was really upset with my kids and I was feeling really upset and pushing away that feeling wouldn't have been helpful. But at the same time, I also knew that the only reason I was feeling upset with them was because I had a certain expectation and I had all these thoughts about them and, you know, all the things that were right. in my head that I, were, I was agreeing with. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with us. That was really very, very powerful. Go on forever. Us. So <laughs> be careful. Yeah. With yeah. But you, you speak a lot, about, a lot about this and more in your course and in your podcast so yes. definitely check it out yes, okay you don't so, have to be in your first year of marriage to listen by the way of people all the way from high school oh, up good through point. more than 20 years married that are listening to the podcast and i love it yes 100 percent um now you moved from atlanta you went from Passaic, and from Passaic you moved to atlanta georgia mm -hmm. 
And you now live in Israel. Yes. You just recently made Haliyah to Very Israel. now. That's, yeah. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Like, incredible. How, how did you guys decide to make this huge move? Mm. I mean, this is not just going to Atlanta, Georgia. Like, right. just moving from New York to, like, New Jersey would be a huge move for me. So, like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I'd say, like, 90% of this move has been about as hard as moving from Atlanta to Passaic. That was a really hard move. I mean, Passaic to Atlanta was also very hard. Um, yeah. Any move is hard. Any move is hard. Yeah. Any real move is hard. So, so I, I why did I you guys decide to do it? Yeah. I wish I had like a perfect, like on one foot. What I could say is I, I really left Israel kicking and screaming um, when we got married <laughs> and we, mm-hmm. we really always wanted to come back every year. We sat down with our rabbi and we said, now can we go? Now can we go? What do you think? And every year mm-hmm. the rabbi said, you know, like, I'm not telling you no, but this is a concern. This is a, you should look at this. You should work on this. You know, in the very beginning, it was like, you guys, no, you can't go. You will destroy your marriage. And he was absolutely right because we had zero skills, zero Hebrew. I mean, we had nothing and we had zero marriage. You know, we just gotten married. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, eventually my husband's job shifted and we had actually literally just closed the book. We had just decided, okay, that was our deadline for how old our kids are six months earlier. So we met with the rabbi and we said, okay, so we're going to Oh, you had a deadline. Oh yeah. We said when my daughter's going into second grade. Um, And we, we sat down and we said, okay, so we're going to switch to the retirement plan. Like when the last kid goes to yeshiva and seminary, we're going to go then. Is that a good plan? The rabbi said, yes. And we like closed the book. Right. Um, Six months later, my job, my husband's job shifted. And all of a sudden he had this light bulb moment of we could totally move to Israel. We should totally move to Israel. And I was like, wait a second. Oh my God. <laughs> I pushed for 10 years for this. Like, I don't know if I'm ready. I stopped wanting this. Like, like I got comfortable, you know? Um, yeah. But I think it really for came sure. down to in a big way of, you know, this is, this is really where we feel is our home as Jewish people. And um, mm-hmm. everything is more intense here, but it's more intense on both sides of the spectrum, you know? And, and what's um, that? the way I described it when I left Israel and I was like, so, so depressed when I left Israel the first time, um, was it felt like I had my whole life. This is, this is how I experienced this. So some people listening are going to resonate, you know, this will resonate and some not. And that's okay. I don't mean to say this, however you feel, but my experience was I felt as if I'd been living inside a, a black and white television my whole life. You know, you watch a black and white movie, you don't even notice that there's no color. And then mm-hmm. someone had suddenly plugged in Technicolor, like all the color had shown up on the screen. And I lived like that for a year. And then someone <laughs> unplugged it and I went back to black and white. You know, wow. when I was in Israel, it was a hard year. It was very, very intense, you know, especially when you're, when you're about Shuva and you're questioning and growing and all this stuff. It's an intense year, but it was in color. And I felt like, you know, in Israel, if you need $11.15, and 15 cents, Hashem gets you $11.15. If you're in America, you get 15 bucks, you know, or like $10. Like in Israel, you get it. It's just, Hashem is just communicating with you directly all the time. It's just amazing. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I just, once he was like, I think we could do this. I think we should try. And I was like, all right, <laughs> let's go. All right. Yeah. yeah. Let's just pass our entire life and yeah. move to another country. And I mean, you're there for three months now. What's it like? Can you tell us what you love about Israel and what you are having a difficult time with in Israel? Right. So full disclosure, my Hebrew is terrible, right? And I was trying to explain to my daughter's teacher why we were late. I almost said to her that we ate a wedding yesterday. 
So <laughs> that's, you know, like I'm really struggling in that area. And we're in Ulpan, which is, you know, a very big time commitment with four young kids and a business. Like it's not, that's not yeah. easy. Um, mm-hmm. So, so like there's technical things, which I feel like are to me, the easiest way to phrase them is to just remind myself that I'm an immigrant. You know, that as much mm. as this is our home, I'm also an immigrant and I don't speak the language and, and they shouldn't speak English. <laughs> I, right, don't think, right. I don't think they should all know how to speak English. And I don't think that they should all run their supermarkets the way that we run the supermarkets in the States. And so I'm an immigrant. So that means that part of my job is to learn the ropes and, um, you know, and so that, that sometimes can be hard. Like, you know, if you're trying to communicate and it feels very urgent and you can't, um, it's very mm-hmm. humbling. It's very humbling and it can be very frustrating and overwhelming. Um, with that said, I think when I, I feel like we're, we're in holy soil over here, I really see the yeah. difference already in three months, the way my husband is connecting to his Torah learning, the way my children are respecting it, the way that my children are like, you know, used to be that I had a hard time teaching them that if a homish fell on the floor, you had to quickly pick it up and, and put it away. And now yeah. it's not a question. Like they see it they, immediately. It's, there's, it's just more like in the air, I feel like in, um, we couldn't find our kids one Shabbos and we found them saying to Hillam with a lady on the street. <laughs> you know, it's oh like, you don't you right. know, experience this kind of thing. And, you know. I mean, that's, that's because you're also in Ramat Shemesh. I mean, if you were living in Tel Aviv, that would probably be another sure. story. Or am I wrong? For sure. No, for sure. For sure. It's true. I mean, and then also in Ramat Shemesh, the landing is much softer, right? My husband, mm-hmm. our Rav speaks English. When my daughter, we got here, mm. she broke her leg within like a couple days. And you know, the doctor was an Anglo. And so even though he does speak Hebrew, he spoke to us in English. That definitely helped. It was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. I think that was part of our, our decision was, you know what, like we could, we believe there's a mitzvah of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael. Um, mm-hmm. We think it's very good to integrate, but there isn't a specific mitzvah to be Israeli, right? And so we mm-hmm. have to judge for ourselves, like what's healthy, how much can we push ourselves before maybe it's too much. And the mm-hmm. truth is, you know, we're seeing as so many Jews are coming to Israel now. I don't know what the situation is going to be when my kids are older and if they'll be integrated enough or if that will even matter because everyone's here already, Mir Tashem, you know, so right. we're just kind of saying right. what, what can we offer our children is we can offer them a childhood filled with Kedusha where the parents are happy and fulfilled and feel like they're where they're meant to be. And I think that's the best bet I've got for my kids right now. That's incredible. Can you tell us any advice that you would give to people who are thinking about it, like me? <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe. Um, I don't know. Come, I we have a guest room. There, come visit. <laughs> um, sure. I think talking to people who had moved was very helpful. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, this is really funny, but I would say whether it's through me or through Brooke Castillo, I would say learn the thought work, actually. Um, Learn the thought work? Yeah, the thought work that I was talking about before. My husband says to me repeatedly that if he hadn't learned thought work, he wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, But when we're in a difficult situation, again, knowing I'm really overwhelmed, but I'm also overwhelmed because I think X, Y, Z, you know, just knowing that actually has made it a lot, a lot more doable. Um, Mm -hmm. So what else would I say? I would say for sure going on the pilot trip was very helpful. I would say if you need to work on your Hebrew, my husband worked with like on Duolingo every single day before we mm-hmm. came. And he like is a much higher level in Ulpan than I am. And I don't know if that would have mm-hmm. been the case if it hadn't been for it. It really is helpful. So just having that, sure. you know, having that extra 
that extra Hebrew goes a long way. And, you know, everyone has to feel like you need to have like very thick skin. Neither of us have thick skin. You you guys don't have thick skin? No. Mm -mm. Nope. (laughs) Like I find that when I go to Israel, I end up like, I end up like arguing. That's great. See, you can do it. That's wonderful. (laughs) No, like I don't take it. Like I remember one time I was waiting on the supermarket line and I literally like the person left right in front of me and I was literally just about to move and this woman pushed me she's like Zandy! I was like excuse I turned around I'm like excuse me I'm like my best manners yeah there's a way to talk and my husband's like Karen, Karen don't, you don't have to fight back with them I'm like no they have to learn they're like no this is the way they are this is like their culture I mean, do you agree or disagree? Is that I mean, like- I think they both work. Meaning I think that if I want to get into an argument with someone and see if it works, sometimes it works. You know, sometimes that works. And they just want to see, like, are you going to let me in or not? And um, sometimes I'm like, that's not worth it. You know, and then I remember before we came, I said, worst case scenario, I'm, if I have to cry, I'll just cry. And they're just going to have right. to deal with me crying. Like they're just, and it's going to make them uncomfortable. But if like, I'm in a situation where I'm so overwhelmed that I started to cry, then that's their problem. And I'll just cry while I'm doing whatever I need to do. <laughs> there is like a program that teaches about Anglo culture to Israelis, you know, right. to teach them like, this is how they are. This is how you have to be with them. This is how you say please. And thank you. You know, but again, like, you know, they're not the immigrants. Right. Right. You know? We have, we have to learn to be more like that. <laughs> or we just accept it, meaning, right? It's okay, they're not going to say please and thank you. So, like, I got yelled at because, like, my gro- I, I, order my, my, I ordered, I don't know if I'll keep doing this, but I ordered my groceries online, and they brought too many bags, and they were mad at me for not knowing, like, which ones they weren't supposed to bring. <laughs> oh, my God. So, like, okay, so I could say to them, it's not my problem, it's your problem, or I could, like, say, you need to learn to do your job better, or I could just be like, this is hilarious. <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, the thought process that you're talking like, about. What do I want to choose? Yeah, I'm not going to change them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Kate, we're going to take a different road here, and also we're almost with time right now. Yeah. But um, I want you to tell our listeners about something you went through last year. You went through a major health crisis. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. About what happened? So- so thank God everything's fine. I'll start <laughs> remove the drama from the beginning. I don't need anyone uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but what I have Hashem four children, and with each child, I had increasingly difficult to manage gestational diabetes. And um, looking back, we can see that the writing is on the wall. But generally, the way that gestational diabetes is treated is that if your blood sugar remains high, you probably got type two, which type one mm. and type two diabetes are very different diseases. They cause some of the same problems, but they're, they're very different in terms of what's actually happening. Um, what we realized quite a while after the fact of my last child was born and I was feeling really sick. And since I knew that blood sugar was something that I knew how I felt when I had high blood sugar because of gestational diabetes, um, I checked my blood sugar and I saw it was very high. So I got mm-hmm. myself to a doctor. Unfortunately, I didn't get myself to the right doctor right away. By the time I really found the right person who said to me, you're crazy. You, you've lost all your weight. You, you know, are completely malnourished. She did blood work on me. I had no vitamins anywhere in my body. Um, not none, but very little. 
Yeah. And she said, you're obviously type one. So we're going to run some blood work just to confirm it. But basically type one diabetes is the one that usually you see in children. Um, mm -hmm. It's when your body has an autoimmune reaction. So the immune system attacks itself and the immune system attacks the cells that create insulin. So mm -hmm. for a type one diabetic, you know, exercise helps just about as much as it helps anybody. Right. Um, but I would eat a rice cake and my blood sugar would be in the 300s. Like I couldn't eat anything. I could, I would eat chicken and green beans, like the lowest carb things I could find. And I, I, oh, wow. I would, I couldn't, my body couldn't handle it. It was very, very high blood sugar. Um, by the time I got finally to the endocrinologist, she told me I was very lucky. If I'd been two weeks later, I would have been hospitalized. But oh, I, I got to her in time. But you know, by the time I got there, I was, you know, people should know the symptoms that they should never have the situation. But my husband would get home from work and I would have to go to bed for the night, like at six o'clock. And I would, I would beg him starting at five. He works usually till like seven. I would start begging him, please come home. I have to sleep. I'm, I can't, I can't keep my eyes open. And I would just go to sleep and I didn't want to eat anything because I felt terrible whenever I ate. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm again, so thank God, like, yeah, thank God they, they figured out what I had. They diagnosed me. It was clearly type one because I had all these, I don't know, the way that they, they tested is very tricky because you can't really test for insulin. So I had to test for other things, but basically saw that I was producing very little insulin, which means um, type one. Um, mm -hmm. And so that all happens, like, right, my, actually just my, my diversary, my diabetes anniversary was November 1st. So this is only two days later. Oh. It's only been a year, but um, what was really the, again, like, I think I said this earlier, the, the cure before the Maka, you know, before the Maka was that as this whole thing was going on, I was running a group coaching program. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've been coaching on and off, like one-on-one -on -one people, but the group coaching program was very immersive. I was creating classes for them and I was coaching in a group with them every single week and, you know, working on the material. And I was just completely living and breathing this stuff. And I remember mm -hmm. finding out everything about what was going on and, you know, what we were dealing with and realizing that I wanted to give myself space to make this mean whatever I wanted. I didn't, I, I made a conscious decision other than my husband. We didn't tell anybody for a while what was going on oh. because I, what I really didn't want was like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Pity. Right. Mm -hmm. Not just the pity. I didn't want them telling me my story. Right. Uh, and people do it uh -huh. to commiserate. It's not a bad thing to do, but I wasn't ready because I was in this place. Of, it was almost like Hashem gave me this pause of like, here's everything that's happening. Now you can decide what it means before you deal with like, you know, again because my so I was so involved in this work that like my my, mm -hmm. like my brain was like very pliable at the moment you know and wow, um, the thought work that you're yeah, talking about yeah yeah so mm -hmm. so that was really like the bracha but I think also that was a big piece of of us sort of looking and um you know on the one hand unfortunately insulin and diabetes is an issue that the United States healthcare system does not deal with very well um there's right. some things that they do great but unfortunately for a person like me I would die without insulin, right? I absolutely needed to live. And, um, and it's, it's, they're making a lot of money on it. Um, so, mm -hmm. so we kind of felt like, okay, you know what? Like you're complaining about the Israeli healthcare system, but we've got our complaints over here too. You know, it kind sure. of in a way like helped ease the, the way. And it also helped us see, like, I think every time you have something really big like that happen, you're just kind of like, okay, we, um, uh, let me reassess everything you know? Right. And, um, I think that sort of also played into the decision to move. Oh, it was a catalyst for sure. No way, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. Kate, uh, I, told, I just called you Kate. You can call me Kate. <laughs> I just, Kate <laughs> I or Kayla. It. My old people, awesome. you know, like my, yeah. Thank you for sharing that story with us because yeah. I feel like a lot of women who get diagnosed with something, whether it's big, medium, small, you know, um, I think a lot of people turn to victimhood or, you know, they want people to feel sorry for them. And you're here telling us that you're not allowing your type 1 diabetes to defeat you. And based on the thought work that you are teaching the world, you are applying it to your life. And it's helping you to, in a way, take charge of your, your illness. I see yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's an interesting disease because on the one hand, you can't do anything to cause it, right? As far as anyone knows right now. So I definitely had this, you know, especially with gestational diabetes where I would walk in and I was like, you've got to be kidding me people, right? Like I, I drink right. kale smoothies for breakfast. I'm, everyone makes fun of me. My favorite food is a salad. Like I actually enjoy- But you did everything food. right. I'm do, yeah, like I'm the health nut. So what is this? Like I'm the one that gets diabetes and I'm sitting there watching my friends wolf down a bagel and I'm like, what is going on? Like this doesn't make any right. sense, right? Again, that's when I still thought that I was like going down the type two diabetes track, which I guess would have been a little different. I don't know. But um, mm -hmm. the other piece is that I think that, you know, look, if you, if you have type one, like I do, so I'm now as of last week attached to an insulin pump, right? Like you need, every time you eat, you need insulin because your body doesn't produce it. So it's either a lifetime of taking shots whenever you eat or wearing a pump, like a little machine on you that delivers insulin to you your body. You have to wear it all day? Yeah. 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 To take it off the How shower, but yeah. How do you feel about that? Yeah. So, that so, you know, like this is a good example of like, on the one hand, like I did spend some time, especially with the gestational, I spent a lot of time with like, how come my pregnancy is so much harder and I feel so terrible the whole time and like in that self-pity mode. But mm -hmm. in a way, this is also a disease that's very easy to feel positive about because it used to be a death sentence. Right? Say that again. It used to be a death sentence if somebody got this. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it wasn't that long ago that they didn't have insulin. And you know, if I, even if I look back a little while, I didn't have an insulin pump. Right. So I've gone from having to give mm -hmm. myself shots every time I want to eat and having these crazy calculations to just putting in what I'm eating and then I'm done. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, I, I don't, I don't know for every disease. I hope that people can all take a message, you know, of, of positivity, but um, this is an interesting one because I think that there, there is room for, Gratitude. Hmm. Beautiful. It's really beautiful. Kayla, can you tell us um, some of your hopes and dreams for the world? Mashiach will be top of the list. Yeah. Big one. Um, right. Oh my gosh, that's a big one. That's a big one. I, I mean, I can say from a very personal place in terms of the the, the mitzvah that I connect to, and the work that I do is I really, mm -hmm. really believe that we could get to a place where people automatically go and seek out information on how to be married. Um, mm -hmm. I think that strong marriages can contribute so much to the world. And um, I think that it could be so easy for us to have this cultural shift of you get married and you start learning, whether I don't, my course, great, someone else's course, great. But just this idea that we go into it knowing that there's something to be learned so that we can avoid all this resentment that could be built up early on. We don't have to backtrack and deal with all this stuff, but we like come in and um, 
and we can appreciate each other so much more when we understand each other better. So I right. think in my little, in my little Daladamos, that's what I would say. That's beautiful. That's a very powerful statement. Strong marriages is what contributes to the world. You have a strong foundation and then that affects the way you are with your children and affects the way you are in your workspace and how you interact with everybody else. It's really, it's the foundation. Beautiful. Kayla, tell us where people can find you. Okay, so the podcast is called First Year Married, that's I-E-D, and mm -hmm. that is on all major podcast players, so you just have to plug that in and you'll see it. Um, and I'm on Instagram at First Year Married if you're there, and I try to keep things pretty mm -hmm. organized, firstyearmarried.com is the website. Great, First Year Married, and again, as you said before, you don't have to have your first year in order to listen to a podcast and take your courses. You can be married for like 20 years, 30 years, very whatever it is. Yeah. Sometimes women will just say like, I want to do this again. I need another Shana Rishona. I'm like, it's amazing. Oh. Very inspiring. Yes. A hundred percent. I highly recommend all of you who are listening to this to check out our podcast, check out our website. And Kayla, you're doing amazing things for Claudia L and for the entire world. And thank you, thank you so, so much. much for being on my show. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. If you enjoy this podcast and you want to hear more soul sessions, you can go on SinaiRadio.com or type in Sinai Radio on all major podcast players and you can see a whole bunch of other soul sessions. And if you want to learn more about what I do, you can check out my Instagram page at SoulTrainKK. Have a wonderful day.